Hello, welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano, and for today, we're going to do another film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. But before we go on, I'd like to wish our listeners safety and good health, and please just stay at home if you can. And yeah, let's do our part in trying to fight this COVID-19. Anyway, so for today... We're going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 88th Academy Awards. That film is Son of Soul or Saul Fia in its original language, written and directed by Laszlo Nemes. So this was Hungary's second win and ninth nomination. So this film is about Saul Oslander, a Jewish Hungarian prisoner in Auschwitz working as a Sonderkommando. So for historical context, Sonderkommando are the prisoners in, held captive by the Nazis that are forced to work in the camps. Um, so they are given like some a few months to live before they're eventually killed. So basically they do assist in the mass murders that are taking place in these camps. So Saul finds a boy who barely so survived gassing but he that boy was then killed by a nazi physician so he then spends the rest of the day trying to look for a rabbi to give the boy a proper jewish burial Um, and then he also claims that he's the father of the boy at the same time his fellow sunder commandos are starting to plan and then ultimately stage a rebellion inside a camp so that's a quick summary of Son of Souls. So our guest for this episode is from my home country, the Philippines. He is an aspiring screenwriter and also a fellow alumnus from the University of the Philippines Film Institute. So please welcome Mr. Rafi Raimundo. Hello. Hey, hey, Carlos. How are you doing? Uh, okay. I mean, all things considered, I mean... Cannot really complain, <laughs> in as much as we have a lot of to complain. Uh, yeah, relatively okay. And you? Oh, uh, same. Uh, basically, just trying to find ways to feed my cat uh, during this crisis. So, <laughs> yeah, but I can't complain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're also we also we're also here, also feeding our cats. I mean, we have I think five cats and. <laughs> Oh, the thing, really? the thing oh. is, they're not really our cats. Um, <laughs> they're my grandmother's, <laughs> and my grandmother really? left, uh. and she did not bring the cats with her. So, yes. And where can our listeners find you and your work? Well, uh, nothing yet, but I am starting my own uh, podcast. It's going to be called... Is it weird plugging another podcast? On no, podcast? <laughs> this, is, this, this is the part where it's not weird. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, you can you guys can catch me in the future uh, on Script Tease. So it's like Script Tease, but spelled with script at the beginning. So it's more on... Um, it's just me. No, no, no guests, unfortunately. But it's just me talking about uh, like what storytelling lessons we can learn from good stories, whether, whether it's from film, TV, animation, books, or comics. So yeah, well, I'll, I'll post more about that in the future. 
Yeah, really looking forward to that because I think this is, uh, I don't want to make it sound like opportunistic, but this is a great time, I think, for podcasters to start their platform and use their platforms to share uh, stuff. And oh my gosh, oh, yeah, that yeah. name, Scripties. So I would really be looking yeah. forward to that. This is the first time I've heard that. So, yep. And now let's start with general thoughts. Is this the first time you watched Son of Zaw? Ah, uh, yes. So you gave me that homework to, to watch the film because I haven't seen the film. So I, I did. And yeah, I have a few thoughts um, about it. So let's start with the, the big general thoughts. What are your thoughts, your general thoughts on Son of Soul? All right. So what I liked mainly is that it's uh, it's atmospheric, right? So it's because uh, you know if, if I compare it to a World War II story like let's say Inglorious Bastards, which I think is also the Quentin Tarantino, which I think is also a great film in its own right, um, it's stylized, right? Um, whereas this one is more shot in a cinema verite style, very realistic. You know, you have your handheld cam and all that. So it's a, it's a period film, but it, it's not stylized and it doesn't over-dramatize any, anything. So that's one thing. Uh, and of course, I have a bias for the handheld style. Uh, one of my other favorite films based on that, that employs the same style is uh, Children of Men, uh, 2006. So yeah, um, there is no, uh, it's, it's, it's also very tight. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's just one scene that goes into another scene. There is absolutely no sub subplots that I can remember or I can think of. It's mainly about Saul. And as you mentioned, he's trying to bury the, uh, the kid <laughs> that she finds. So, yep, that's, that's my overall impression, uh, well, about the movie. Uh, what do you think? Uh, well, I think I, I'm I'm not sure if this is my second or third time to rewatch to watch this film. I I am so glad I did not watch this last night. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> it's heavy. I'm so glad I did it in a Sunday afternoon, where with family right. and even if there are dark stuff that's happening in the film, like there's a sunlight. Uh, we're still okay. Um, but I think now it resonated with me more. I think this is such, and I mean this as a compliment, this is such a painful, exhausting film to right. watch. And yeah. appropriately mm -hmm. so. Because it tells the story of basically coming face to face with death in Auschwitz. I mean... If we're talking about the history of cinema, there's so many films already told about World War II and even about the Holocaust. I mean, we have Steven Spielberg doing that with Schindler's List and you even have yeah. tons of documentaries, which um, unfortunately I have not seen. I've seen uh, very few films about the Holocaust. So in some ways, the topic of the camps of Auschwitz, it's not something new. And you know, sometimes when you watch a film, like you have like some sort of recognition, like, uh, uh, okay. Uh, like if for, for example, when you're watching a period film, a period piece from Britain and it's about the royal family, like, okay, I, I, I see the visuals. Like you have some sort of like recognition, like, okay, 
there, there's a recall. I think with Son of Saul, it's a refreshing take on World War II, specifically the Holocaust, just because of how immersive it is. And it makes you so uncomfortable when you're watching it. I mean, other films have done uncomfortable, but I don't know if they have achieved this level of closeness to a person who's actually going through it. It's it's almost, you mentioned something a while ago about a video game, uh, maybe not recorded, but a while ago before we, t- we started recording. In some ways... <laughs> um, and this is not to diminish the film, but in some ways it feels like a video game of how involved you are in watching and what you, in some ways, because of the filmmaking techniques and at the same time, just everything about this film, it makes you so invested to the main character. So, yeah, it feels relentless. So you mentioned a while ago on how there's not, there's not a lot of subplot. It's I think the, the word that yeah. I use is bare bones. Um, how do you think that helped the film in telling the story that it's, there's not a lot of happening. It's basically one day in this person's life. So how do you think that bareness of the narrative has helped the storytelling? Right. So these kinds of movies, um, so I failed to mention maybe because I'm so used to violence, right. And I'm, I'm familiar with the topic, right. Concentration camps, um, testing different types of gases on masses of innocence. It's very grim. <laughs> That's right. So I didn't, uh, maybe, I, uh, I don't know, uh, seeing a lot of violence uh, before this film, it's kind of uh, uh, sad to say it, it feels toned down, which is good because all you see are the piles of bodies um, after the fact. So it's terrible to watch because you're thinking, Wow, this happened. This was real. This is history. And tying that with just following Saul through his his day, um, it it kind of um, what that does is it it lets the audience. I mean, if this is the intention, it lets the audience sort of focus on what actually happened. So it doesn't dwell on. Uh, the subplots, but there are, I, I guess, come to think of it, there are some backstories that we can see. Like, uh, do you remember the uh, the girl in the workshop? Right, yeah. she she recognize she recognizes him, but we don't know the story there. Really, like ex lovers, or they seem to have some sort of relationship, but I didn't pick up on it. So yeah, the the story by keeping it with Saul it focuses on his grief and his um you know like the i think there's five stages of grief the first one is a uh, denial so when you lose someone you're just in denial and saul was was that he was in denial the whole film even up until the end when spoiler alert <laughs> when he sees the boy which at first you think Oh, he's he's now seeing his his son, this this ghost. But no, it's actually a real kid. <laughs> it's an actual kid who goes off into the woods and and so on and so forth. So, so yeah, that's uh, it helps. So if you know less subplots, clearer main story is, I guess, is the summary. Yep, it is a very clear-eyed story, 
uh, in my opinion. It's it is all about being present in the moment, immersing the viewer in this excruciating experience of, in a way, uh, it's such a confounding position because he's assisting people to their deaths, knowing that right. soon he'll be dying, but we are spared of the violence. Everything else happens off screen. Everything else happens in the blur in the background. Everything happens yes. in the sound design. Yeah, yeah. That effing sound design that um, actually took five months <laughs> so to do the sound design. So, oh um, yeah. Yeah, it is such a powerful, in a way, like memorial. Because I think we have reached a point where uh, this happened in 2015, but with the rise of fascism, because I don't know what happened with the universe, but I think 2016 onward, we just had the worst group of leaders in the oh. world. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and then the rise of fascists and neo-Nazis. I mean, they did not go out in style forever. It's just yeah, that the neo-Nazis. Became, yeah. Yeah. Very recently, like the there's this footage of... Uh, neo-Nazi rallies, and then um, anti-neo-Nazi rallyists, and then there's uh, violence between the two groups. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, and it's just so confounding because this is a historical event, but you hear people say that it did it did not happen. And this was, this, this conversation grounded on misinformation is already happening as early as the 60s. People are already denying that Holocaust existed, that Jews were killed. But among or amidst all of that denial, I think the strongest argument one can have, if they would, uh, if they don't want to be preached, then an immersive film like *Son of Soul* puts everything in perspective, because now you understand what people went through during those times. It is not a made-up story. And actually, I am just astounded by my research. <laughs> um, actually, a while ago, like before we started, um, you remember the scene in the film where one has a camera and he's taking photos? Um, yes, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was actually based on an actual Sonderkommando or a, a prisoner who took photos and I saw the photos and that just put me in the mood for this conversation. <laughs> so Wow. Um, okay. So there's actual photos. All right. Yeah. So this notion of putting the viewer in the shoes of the character and let letting everything else be on the background or be conveyed through con um, subtext or nuances. It's about being present in the moment. It's about being with that character. It's about experiencing the horrors of this atrocity in human history that in some ways is kind of having a comeback uh, from different countries yeah. all over the world. So it is. this film is a reminder of this is what happens when we lose our humanity. And it doesn't need to preach what's good, what's bad. It's about putting you in the shoes of the main character, literally behind the back of that character for most of the film. And 
laying it out on you that this is what happens when yeah. we let this happen. And uh, with the, I like what you mentioned about uh, keeping the violence in the background. Is it again? It all ties into you know following Saul's story. Um, but the violence in the background, it, I like um, how it's blurred because um, there's there are a few scenes that I took note of that were uh, very effective for me. I think because um, you know, like what uh, if you're familiar with uh, Ernest Hemingway, American novelist dude. <laughs> well, he's the guy who kind of made the iceberg theory popular. You know, like. Oh wait, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, you can <laughs> you can add some description in the in the notes if I'm wrong. But the idea is uh, the way he wrote. Uh, if you, if you can imagine an iceberg, like ninety percent of it is submerged, right? So um, Hemingway wrote. He he just gave you details. He gave you the facts, but he barely or never showed you what the characters were truly uh, feeling, uh, which I actually liked. So. In relation to that, there's this scene in Son of Saul where, um, uh, well, the first few scenes in Son of Saul, he's just walking around. You see a bunch of people. You notice that he's wearing a jacket with a red X mark behind it. And then the next scene, we're inside the, the chamber already. And uh, you realize that most of the people that he was walking with in, in the earlier scenes are already naked and then they go into the gas chamber and then they close the door and then you know holy shit they start banging and screaming and that's it so um without because uh for me i don't like reading the synopses or the summaries of films before i watch them i want to watch movies as is uh as much as possible not even see a review so so yeah, that's uh, this that it's that scene where you realize, you know, this is a gas chamber and we are in World War Two. So, so that's it. <laughs> well, my my favorite scene. It's a very dark scene, and I'm sorry I laughed at that, but you know, it's kind of a nervous laughter. Okay. <laughs> I agree with you with how it puts everything on the side. And I remember we talked about a while ago about being exposed to violence. You mentioned something about that. And in this case, Saul is a person already exposed to violence. So in a way, he can drown it out He's after he's been desensitized by the violence going on around him. And I remember there are only very few instances in the film where violence is actually shown. And in some ways it makes you understand his disposition at the time. He's there, He's he's been doing this for quite a while already. I mean, you mentioned a first scene. It's like one mass murder and then we went to the next room and then another group comes. So it's a cycle where he's in and he's desensitized to that already. And his exposure to that makes sense in the film. Right, game. right. That's the word, yeah, desensitized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Another thing, uh, and and yeah, so so these are dark times in the film, and we want these our heroes to succeed. Basically, of course, <laughs> most audience people, moviegoers, hopefully they side with them, 
I'm not sure if anyone who watched the movie incited with the Nazis. That's probably bad. But most of us, even if we're, you know, we're not Jewish or we weren't born in the, in that era, or um, we would side with the good guys and we want them to win. So what happened here was, uh, I guess, another thing that I like to point out is I didn't uh, actually like Saul's character throughout the movie, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, because um, uh, you have these uh, heroes or you have these like characters who want to fight back. So even in the, it's very Lord of the Rings, you know, even in the darkest of places, there's light. Or very uh, Rihanna, you know, they they're finding love in a hopeless place. <laughs> I'm kidding, but uh, that's the idea. The doctor, I noted it down because it's a nice line. Uh, there's a doctor character when Saul shows uh, this this the body of his son, quote unquote, to the doctor. The doctor says, "I'm a prisoner like you," and then he whispers it, you know. And then there's this other guy, this um, military guy. Um, who is planning to use a bomb to somehow escape their their situation, and you have the other uh, accomplices like, let's see, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Mitek, Mitek the Ober Commando. So he's one of the guys. Well, of course they've herded probably millions of people to their deaths, but you know they're it's because they're they kind of have to. You know, it's kind of uh, in this case, it's more survival at this point. So there, there are all these um, people trying to save the day. But then Saul is the guy who kind of messes it all up, <laughs> I guess. Um, but, well, we understand why. It's, it's uh, very heavy emotionally what he's going through. Um, we see that he's very troubled. He's, there's this line also about Something, something, um, we're going to die. And then he says, don't you get it? We're already dead. Or something to that effect. And he gave up. He gave up. And it's kind of sad because you kind of want to go inside the movie and, and just shake, shake Saul. Wake up, man. Because, <laughs> you know, uh, in that situation, um, you would want to help the people who still have, have hope, right? Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, with the, uh, I'm not sure if the director, uh, Laszlo, yeah, wrote the movie, it. but the way he wrote it was, yeah. he co-wrote it, right? So um, the it's interesting that the bomb was given to him, uh, a hopeless guy. So I'm thinking, um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of why. I, I guess it, it's more dramatic that way because you have this reluctant, guy he doesn't really want to be a hero because he's already lost hope but what do you think about that uh the way the story was told why was the bomb given to this uh, to uh Saul? Well, actually i was well, you mentioning that i was actually gonna counter it with a question for you but maybe later but i was thinking right. of how <laughs> uh, okay. of how you mentioned that he's not really the character of soul is not really that likable um, and it's fine, I think, when you are exposed to that kind of horror, I don't think being likable would help you survive. But I also think that he is a bit selfish um, because he wants to prioritize right. yeah. giving a burial to, uh, to his 
unquote son. Um, and then with that bomb, mm. he kind of sabotages that and makes it harder for them to have an easier rebellion because mm, he yeah. lost it. He lost that gunpowder because he was trying to look for a rabbi to do um, the burial. Yes. Um, yes. So in a way, he's not really trying to... You, you mentioned about hope. He's not really trying to come out of this alive, I guess. Uh, he's there, already accepted his fate, and he's just there trying to do his job. And in some ways, this quote-unquote son gives him you know, something to do, something to look forward to, something to for himself. Because everything else, it's about in in service of this mass murdering machinery that the enemy has put him, unfortunately, as some sort of what is the right word like a, like a punisher, you know, um, he's leading people to death. So you mentioned about him carrying the gunpowder, right? The gunpowder. So I think it's him, yeah, having the potential of making a bigger change. But because of his own self-interest, of his selfishness, he misses that opportunity. He wastes that chance because of his own personal interest. Right, right. So now that you mention it, maybe that's, maybe that's the point. Um, you're, giving, um, you're giving this, this weapon, this hope, to uh, to a hopeless person, uh, I guess for for contrast as well, to make us uh, to make us realize that in in moments like this, if you know dark times like these happen again, uh, like not to lose hope and to think of the larger, like you said, the larger the larger picture against, um, yeah, this murder machine. <laughs> This whole country, who decided that they were well uh, superior to other uh, people, um, so yeah, and the rabbi that he keeps looking for, uh, I I kind of somehow predicted it because it, it it wouldn't make sense for him to find a random rabbi, right? Uh, and uh, I, I lost, um, I had sympathy for Saul at the beginning, but then when he had the first rabbi killed. Uh, you know when he took the shovel and threw it in the water. For me, that's the scene where I, I stop, sort of siding with Saw. Like I've seen that. Oh no, this guy will risk everything and will get other people killed just to get this body buried. Uh, but um, even though it sounds like we're, well, we're judging him. Uh, we're we're not we kind of understand you know he's yeah he's stressed traumatized <laughs> so but yeah it's it, it's probably a, a PTSD for sure yeah by that and point going back to the bomb <laughs> going back and then trailing towards that um, yeah being non-judgmental I think he was also given the bomb because he's the efficient worker there you know he. He just comes in and out, comes in and out, does his job. So they um, thought yeah. that oh, maybe he could be good for this mission because he, he does, he gets the job done. It's just that, like you mentioned, 
the film really shows us this film doesn't make us uh, like him. But at the same time, the film is non-judgmental. It just shows how a damaged person can go. Uh, He becomes selfish. I mean, usually we think of situations like, why didn't you stand up for everyone's right? Why didn't you become a hero? I think when you are in the moment of being victimized and literally being threatened by death, in some ways, you become sub, uh, submissive or subservient or whatever the word. You you are trying to live. But <laughs> that moment also of, of me speaking right now, and I realize that he's trying to stay alive, but he's not living anymore. Or maybe that's a, a switch. He tries to live, but he's not alive anymore. So his acknowledgement of him being dead. Right. But at the same time, there's this fascination for him to bury the dead. I don't know about that, but um, a big chunk of the film is about him looking for a rabbi. So I think the, the concept or the theme of faith is a huge part in this. And I remember I read something uh, Lash Anonymous mentioned that uh, the character of Saul is n- not a religious person and actually makes mistakes about what it means to bury in the Jewish way. You don't need a rabbi. You need no. 10 people saying the Kaddish. So he never gets that right. What do you think of, given this piece of information from the director and co-writer, what do you think of Saul being not a religious person, being so fascinated by that religious practice? when confronted by the situation. Wow, so that's that's new. Um, well, now that you mention it, uh, <laughs> actually I don't have I don't have anything to say about that except um, that clarifies things. So maybe he he he, uh, he over he overthinks um, what a rabbi can do for, for the kid. because uh, before that fact I was thinking maybe Maybe he was thinking it's a way for this kid, you know, going through hell to go to heaven, something like that, something symbolic. But now that you mentioned that, and probably for for actual Jewish people watching the film, they would know that as well, I'm guessing. They would know that you don't need a rabbi for that. You just need, yeah, 10 people saying a prayer. So... Um, I guess that makes that makes Saul easier to understand. Uh, it makes him more. Uh, it makes him look more irrational, I guess. But uh, again, not judging him, just stating what's in the film, because we're not we're not judging him because it sounds harsh. You know, he's a, <laughs> he's a guy uh, during that time going through so much, and here we are. Let's say he were real. <laughs> probably was you know real but yeah those are my thoughts on it it simplifies his character you know you mentioned he's a watchmaker or yeah he's a watchmaker so it makes sense he's he's a craftsman so he he probably hasn't um thought about life after this war or um he had faith in his religion so much that he was willing to die on earth he doesn't kind of care and 
anymore. You know. Yeah, you, it it also makes sense to me. You mentioned about how he being a worker, you know, he 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 works, and there's nothing much else left for him to live for, but he serves his function in life, I guess. But I I think the conversation about faith with him being a non-religious person suddenly becoming even i think a way more fervent in looking for the rabbi or you know if you're gonna if you're not gonna if you're gonna assume that he's religious and you might one might say that he's actually way way more religious than the people around him but with him not really being a religious person i think this kind of not necessarily comment but kind of draws parallel to when people are confronted with the worst case scenario and not even just religion but being spirit uh, spirituality i think when people are confront when people are confronted by the worst case scenario people become more uh, thoughtful or meditative of uh of life and death and maybe this is soul's way of handling that fear is that this faith that even if he is not really a religious person in some ways this is a thing that he can do i don't know out of charity or of maybe he became a believer or maybe he lost belief and just wanted to do this thing for this child but i am just so fascinated by the conversation or the non-conversation that this film has or not not conversation but stands on faith because no reading that it made me interested like okay that shift in his character maybe pre auschwitz is not really a religious person maybe he's just jewish by blood to this person who tries to <laughs> can you use the word overdo it uh with faith um yeah and what do you think of the boy the son Um, it was never made clear in this film, in the film at least, whether it is actually his child. What do you think of this character's fascination for this child? You know, well, do you have any thoughts on why, why was he fascinated with this boy in the first place? So that's a good question because it's his whole sort of um, action. <laughs> Our goal in the film to bury this boy, and we have this other these other characters that are telling him that he has no son. Uh, and actually, I took note of his response. He said, um, "He's not from my wife." But then we don't know anything after that. So uh, that's um, so it's 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 uh, it never fully answers the question, and I think that that's okay. Uh, but the idea is, uh, if I'm correct, with these what I've written here, uh, they uh, the train that came at the beginning of the film was from Hungary, and I think they were uh, Hungarian. But of course, when when you saw the body, I didn't think, oh, that's his son, or um, oh, he knows him, because what are the what are the odds of that, right? So I think. Um, And this is a pretty late scene when when one of the guys tell him that he doesn't have a son, so uh, it's pretty late in the film. And with his response, he's not from my wife. Either 
A, that could be true. He, he has a mistress somewhere. He has another kid. Or B, what's more likely is he's just, well, for me at least, he's just making excuses. He's just inventing where the kid came from just to justify his, uh, his actions. Um, so, so it's a lie. It's just a straight lie. But the significance for Saul, symbolically, I'm just guessing it kind of represents innocence, you know, just being a child, a boy. Uh, he might relate to that. Um, this kid had died and too early, too soon. I'm not sure how, because in, in a, well, I'm not that religious either, but from what I know with Catholic stuff, <laughs> it's um, when a kid dies, they, they go to heaven straight up. But I'm not sure in, in the Jewish faith, if when a kid dies, do they have to do a Kiddush for that kid to ascend to heaven? Or do they just, um, or do they just automatically go to heaven like, uh, like in our <laughs> religion? So, um, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's a significance on that level. But without that, it's just my first sort of choice, which is that, that maybe it has something to do with, yeah, um, escaping that, that place or, you know, from hell into heaven uh, symbolically. So it's just for him to redeem himself for all the evil he's done i i'm guessing uh, but again somehow um a part of me knows that of course i'm just seeing it right now but it's not as black and white as it seems although he led a lot of people to his his death or to to their death it was because he somehow did not have a choice he was sort of uh most likely he was threatened to become an ober commander or something um in a way, he had little choice, either die or, or join the crew. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I think we are really uh, trying to just, as viewers, because going back to how this film did not really clarify of the backstory, so we're kind of making inferences or like, um, of maybe, maybe why or how, what makes sense for the character. But I just also remember that out of all the people that was killed on the first mur mass murder shown in the film, the boy was the one that was still alive. Yeah. Right. Okay, I forgot that. <laughs> forgot and that. And yep, he, the boy, was then murdered by the physician. So I am I'm also trying to think of maybe that's a reason why he was um he this was because why out of all the people that have been murdered why this boy i am sure that he has assisted the the death of many more people but why this one and when you were talking a while ago i remembered that the boy was still alive when he came out of the gas chamber so maybe right. that's the thing yeah. that sparked the change. And whether that be it actual faith or just giving the boy a proper send-off 
or maybe he has issues with the son I mean his son and he's just trying to use this boy as some like uh, like a surrogate for the son or if that is actually his son your guess is just as good as mine but yeah it, it's a sign of life and this place of death this boy out of all the people emerged alive so it is a reason for him to spark and and go to a new, other direction and i just remembered uh, in Jewish tradition, sons are very important. So maybe that's also a reason why. Mm. Um, I I also don't know about the Kaddish. I should have probably checked that. <laughs> about what's, what's, what's the content and purpose of Kaddish in the Jewish faith. Because that is very interesting. Um, I am I'm not Catholic, but... In terms of the Catholic faith, I mean, a baby goes to heaven if he or she is baptized. Other than that, he goes to limbo, according to the Catholic faith. But in the Jewish faith, I actually don't know. Yeah, it's, it might be a factor, right? It makes sense. But yeah, you're right. That, that was the trigger. I forgot that the kid survived. <laughs> That's um, an emotional trigger for Saul. Even though we don't see much emotion in his in his face, I think <laughs> it's been... going back to the how this film, the story was told. I think it is so important to mention the cinematography of this film. Um, it's it used a very specific aspect ratio. Uh, I forgot the specific aspect mm-hmm. ratio. So one point three seven five by one. Is that how you read aspect ratios? I forgot. Film school. I forgot. <laughs> um, or by one. It's length to width yeah. to okay. height. No. I'm thinking of that. Anyway. Yeah. Let's yeah. research that. Oh Let's... my gosh. Wait a minute. Let yeah. me... And this film used 1.375 by uh, one, yeah. which is the Academy aspect oh. ratio. And this was used, um, used oh, okay. in the 40s. Standard, and at the standard. same time, it was used yeah. shallow focus and narrow field of vision. And a lot of this film is in close-ups. What do you think of this choice of the aspect ratio? Oh, I think um, you were able to grab the sort of uh, the right insight for this. It's about blurring the violence and keeping it in the background and focusing it on Saul. So the focus is very important and very masterfully done in this film because if you ha- if you bring a big big ass camera film camera like that you need a separate guy twisting the focus ring so it, it's hard and if if not if it were just one guy i haven't seen any behind the scenes photos if it were just one guy that guy is crazily good at following focus because um um, there's a reason why it kept so close to his shoulders. It's because, of course, the depth of field is very shallow. But if um, if Saul moved just a little bit further away, the whole shot would be blurry. So that's, I would say, you know, props to the cameraman and cinematographer. Um, how it affected the film? Again, it's it's uh, you know it's cutting out the background, focusing on Saul. And that's it. I, th- I think there weren't any super, hmm, 
very few super complicated shots um, that I can think of. The only deep focus shot I remember was this uh, at the end of the film when this little boy gets grabbed and then, well, I'm not even sure if that's blurred, but I remember seeing a bunch of soldiers in a long line behind the boy. So we have a feel that these soldiers are on the way to the barn house. Um, yep. So that's actually all my comments on the cinematography itself. Uh, all right. First of all, <laughs> I miss this film That's school it. conversations. <laughs> We're talking about how a film was made, how it was shot. <laughs> and then, yeah, shout out to the cinematographer, Matthias Erdeli. I don't know if I'm reading the name right, but it just makes, um, <laughs> it is so crucial in making this film an immersive experience because um, you are forced to not look anywhere else but what's here in front of you. And what's here in front of you is on a shallow focus. And it's mostly, I think all of, almost all of the time, is on soul. So you are yeah. focused yeah. on him and hmm. everything else is at the background. And I think going back to off-screen violence, this film is so effective because it lets you imagine the worst. It's just giving you the details the bodies, the sound of the banging of the doors of the gas chambers, that's it. It's left to you and it just boom, boom, boom. Just so um, it it gave me a physical reaction. <laughs> um, more on that on that one scene we're going to talk later. But um, Lashon Lemus gave the cinematographer rules for this film. So I'm just going to read those five rules. Mm. Uh, the first one is the film wow. cannot okay. look beautiful. The film cannot look appealing. Oh, we cannot oh. make a horror wow. film. Okay, staying with Saul means ah. not oh. going beyond his own field of vision, hearing, or presence. The oh. camera is his companion; it stays with him throughout this hell. Source: IMDb. What do you think of those rules? I think that's exactly what we just talked about. So, yeah, the, the guy followed those rules. It's all I can say. He followed them. What's interesting, though, is the we horror. Cannot film. make a horror what film. Meaning exactly that. Yeah, I don't fully understand. Yeah, what maybe that means. maybe the graphic violence. I don't. I don't know. Or maybe uh, the light becoming too expressive or. Ah yes, yeah, you're you're right. Maybe more of the look, um, because even though it's a dark film and there's a lot of darkness, I guess if we talk about, um, let's see, lighting and color grading, the lighting was um, most of the time in the daytime scenes, it's pretty soft, not not that many hard shadows unless it's nighttime, but. Um, and the color grading is very, well, now that you mentioned the 40s aspect ratio, um, it followed a very, what's that term? Desaturated look. You know, like an old, under-processed or vintage stock film look. So that's, um, obviously that was intended to make it look older. Um, and because if in, in horror films normally, I mean, what I see lately, you're using 
uh, a lot of deep blacks that have zero detail. So when something comes out, especially on the big screen, it really comes out. Um, for example, Hereditary. Ooh. Have you seen? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, it it's is. It's amazing. So, if not, if not the best horror film to come out in the past something years. Um, it, so yeah, that's very deep blacks. Uh, another thing with horror is jarring movements. So it, you, you can do a handheld style, but this one was slow and pretty chill unless they're running around. But you know, in horror, you have this swish pants and um, basically movement, more jarring movements. So this one was pretty uh, yeah. slow, I guess. You mentioned something a while ago about the horror films. Um, I think it, most horror films have a visual precision that and contrast the sound of soul. This film feels, of course, feels spontaneous. Of course, it's not spontaneous. It's so masterfully directed and staged. Yeah. Um, it's rehearsed. Yeah, and yeah. I think well, with horror, there's a fascination... There's a fascination for the horrors. With Son of Soul, uh, I yeah, think yeah. It, they really stuck with the character and gave very little... Uh, not little focus, but... It's all about consistency and making sure that the horrors of the war is in context of the character, not for like um like a visual splendor that a horror films usually have. Because in horror films, they are trying to make a specific, very specific effect on the audience, whether it be the jump scare or a, a long drawn out suspenseful scene. But with Son of Soul, there is nothing oh, artificial right, right, in right. this film. It feels, of course, it feels because this is a recreation. But um, if you would ask me, this feels like someone gave someone a camera actually in Auschwitz and filmed it. It's how raw this film felt for me. Uh, yeah, so in as much as this is a horrifying film, I can see that not make a horror film rule uh, comes through to from prepositions are the worst. Yes, f film editing. <laughs> In this 147-minute film, there are only 85 shots. So a lot of long takes. Yeah. Um, um, with the, just one last note on the horror thing. Uh, it reminds me of uh, The Haunting of Hill House. In, in that, if there are horrors, the camera just sees it to the side and you have to look for it. And it's, uh, for example, like the the scene in Son of Saul with the bodies. It, it doesn't have a, a corny shot where, you know, maybe in a, uh, well, <laughs> sounds bad, but in a, in a bad American horror movie, uh, we see like maybe they're going to have a separate shot, just a wide shot of a pile of bodies. So you have a more, because they staged it, right? They They actually had, Actors get naked, pile themselves up. They staged it so well that it's hard to resist as a cinematographer. It's hard to resist. What if I do a, a master shot, like a wider shot? Because we spent an hour arranging all these bodies. Nothing like that. So it just captures the, the edges of it. Like, 
haunting a villain. We know those conversations during film shoots. <laughs> like, uh, can you can you give me like a <laughs> shot because it was so. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, like ooh, the sunset. Yeah, like, the sunset. we prepare for this for three hours. Can yeah, we just the... get more shots? Um, yeah, and now yeah. I'm just reminded of how I miss film productions, and right now all film productions are on a, on a halt on the suspension. So, yeah, another sad reminder. Um, yeah, I agree with you that. This film just achieved consistency, and I I cannot comment on the haunting of Hill House because it's still in my watch list. I was afraid you're gonna drop a spoiler, so I'm like, oh no 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 no, no. I'm gonna remove my earphones. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, there there are ghosts. There are ghosts. I mean, here. I saw the trailer, uh, and like, yeah, there feels like ghosts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just also going back to the sound design. Oh my gosh. I don't know how this film did not make into a lot of sound awards during 2015 because it is one of the most haunting use of sound in film in recent years and how it illustrated the whole Auschwitz experience through sound. Like, oh my gosh. Um... Yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> right. I mean... Actually I don't have a I don't have any comment on that because I guess I'm not a I'm not a sound person. <laughs> I I'm not really that attentive to, to that aspect. So yeah, tell me more. Uh, well like I think there is just it achieves so much specificity in the sounds that it creates uh, one of the most haunting things that I've ever heard in this film is in the first scene when the people are banging on the doors. The combination of the voices and uh, the banging on the doors and I think there's some water as well. And layers and layers of voices of people crying for help. And then when he goes out, there's a lot of uh, gun firing and then there's like a flamethrower as well somewhere in the film. A lot of cries and screams. And since oh, right. our vision oh, is so yeah, yeah. limited, that's me. That's me. it forces you to grasp to what you have. And because everything we can see is uh, soul, and the, the sound is so complexly designed, you kind of grasp for that. And like, unfortunately, the horrors are also in the sound. So like, okay. I see the five months in sound design. I see where it's coming from. It is really, for me, such complex sound work. And yeah, I have an appreciation for it. Um, I read this there is also a music score. Did you notice it? Score? Okay, so, no way. Yeah, I'm going to read something <laughs> like the music score no. by Lashlo Melis is intentionally kept so subtle that viewers won't even notice it. Source IMDb so. Maybe there's a part of me thinking that okay. Oh, this is such great sound, but there's actually a score. I just did not notice. It's possible, like maybe, maybe like uh, yeah. subliminal beats, like uh, uh, you know, it's like low basses. Um, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, but you're right. The now that you mention it, the flamethrower scene. Um, they were. They didn't have enough space for the chamber, so they had to bring extra people to um, the pits where they just 
threw people in pits and then torched them. So that's insane. So yeah, I remember that scene, all the chaos, the crying, uh, the voices. Yeah, that's pretty uh, horrifying. Uh, we, I think the last thing we left to mention is the lead actor, Geza Rurig as Saul. Uh, what do you think of his performance? Right. Uh, 100% Saul. Because <laughs> I've never seen him in other things, but I'll be surprised if he can do comedy. Um, what's the background on him? Is he like a, a famous actor in his land or does he do other work? Um, or is it, is it his first time acting? If, um, if, if IMDB yeah. memory serves me right, he's actually a professor and he has not acted since the 80s. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. But for what it's worth, he did great. Because in like what, you know, how, how people teach acting, uh, basically with uh, if you compare acting for theater with acting for film, you have all this stuff about, you know, the usual advice that the camera can pick up your facial camera, your facial expressions. Um, that, you know, if you were in a theater audience, you would not pick up on. So, and it's so easy for, even for us right now, we're just uh, talking, my, my video, I'm not seeing my own video, it's off in my end. But we have all these different facial expressions that are happening. But in Son of Saul, everything was in close up. Everything was, um, uh, well, in shallow focus. And on Saul's face, uh, it barely um, moves, which is hard to do because these are long takes and these are multiple takes and these are well-rehearsed um, shots. So uh, for that kind of consistency, um, it's actually hard to do if, his personality were, if he were actually like a bubbly professor, <laughs> but if in real life, if he were casted because he did good in, in, in an audition, maybe, um, if he showed us that he was actually stone-faced to begin with and pretty much emotionless, then, you know, hired. <laughs> so I'm not sure about how he was casted. Um, do you have any notes about how they found he him? He actually or, auditioned for a supporting out? role. Oh, supporting. Okay. Yeah, I see where I see where they came from. Yeah, um, right. I have also not seen his other works. He is supposed. I don't know if they've already filmed it, but he is gonna play no. Jesus Christ in a film by Terrence Malick. Oh wow! His roles are now all uh, torture. Yeah. Of, yes. Jew, of Jewish descent. He's been typecasted. <laughs> we need a tortured guy oh, in his 40s. And he, al- okay. yeah, I, he also made a, a comedy drama in 2018 uh, uh, opposite Matthew, Matthew Broderick. So, right. Would be excited, would be excited to see Matthew that. And he's also a Jew there. Okay. Um, but he, he has a... Um, if you've seen Breathless uh, by Jean-Luc Godard, he does have that vibe. John Paul Belmondo. <laughs> if you, he has the same sort of facial structure. So, yeah, I think he could be a a good comedian, or you know, he can be livelier if he wants to. Um, 
Um, <laughs> yes. He's also a poet. So there you go. And he's actually, yeah. he's really Jewish uh, of descent. Um, and he was also a frontman of an underground music band. So I think he's really, yes. What? He studied filmmaking. <laughs> Multi-talented. So, uh, you yeah. mentioned Breathless. I know John Paul Belmondo cool. and I see the connection. You mentioned about he being mostly emotionless, but I think I think it's kind of harder because of what's going on around him. It's so easy to go big. The character of Saul being numbed by his experience in Auschwitz right. just suits yeah, so yeah, well, yeah. but it's yeah. not lazy acting. It is trauma yeah. and an instinct for survival glommed together and he just masterfully conveys it. I think with 2015 being such a boring year in Best Actor, he should have easily been <laughs> a contender, like a serious contender in most awards. Uh, we're going to talk more about its awards prospect in a few, but this is, I think it's, it's an extraordinary performance of an actor who knows how to ground his character in the reality of the, situa of the situation. I'm not sure if we can talk about the rest of the actors because there's a lot of actors, but they're in shallow focus most of the time. <laughs> like, but if we're going to talk about crowd casting, I think, yeah, this film is populated with talented actors giving their all in performances that are yeah. like barely seen or just heard. But yeah, these are... I don't think there's a sore spot in any of the cast members. It it all feels raw and real. Oh, just one last comment now that you mentioned it. Because um, all these triggers, trigger words, I'm getting triggered. So <laughs> um, uh, there was, uh, you're right, there's a lot of stimulus. And as an actor, uh, the usual thing, like with the different New York schools of acting, you know, these, the, the common thing is, they say that acting is reacting. You know, you're reacting to a stimulus. You're reacting to another actor. But in this case, there's so much stimulus around Saul, but he's reacting to something else, and it's something internal. And to keep that headspace for a long take, it's it's very difficult. Um, if you try it yourself, you'll f and record yourself on camera. Your face will move naturally because uh, it's human. But what he's doing is is different. And the other thing is, um, there was this other scene that I now remember. He uh, he went back to see if the body of the yes. son is still there, in the in the clinic, and then a bunch of doctors appear. So worst case scenario, so he just plays dumb. He plays dumb. You know, this is my whatever. This is my shift. Whatever. And then there's this one oh, guy geez. starts dancing around him and uh, is a uh, very offensive. And then you know. Um, I was thinking at that point, if I were Saul as the character, I would have, you know, I would have beat his ass. You know? it, it's not so, you know, I, I would risk death because that's very you know, offensive and whatever. But you see, you see how um, this is where I see how 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 good this actor is because he's um he's taking it and uh, with with dignity and with a sort of silence that says i don't care about this you know it's just uh kind of sad to watch as well that he no longer reacts to 
to abuse like that. Uh, kind of reminds me of maybe, um, uh, well, Stockholm syndrome. You know, like um, housewives who are beaten, things like that. Uh, these cases where they they no longer react; they just completely submit. So yeah, just just that additional note on his uh, acting yeah. in that scene. And um, I would imagine that he he embraces the flaws of the character. I mean, he's not asking for sympathy. I mean, he could have easily, like, like you know, moved his eyebrow or like a bigger eye to to feel it. I yeah, mean, like I I am guilty of this. I mean, I love acting, yeah, yeah. but. I kind of go big sometimes. I mean, even the nuances aren't so nuanced. <laughs> so, um, for him to embrace that yeah. character's trauma and just embody it without, without the, it, it's also it, it's it's such, I don't know how to put it. There's no extra. <laughs> I'm lacking words, right? It's there's no extra in this performance. Yeah. It's just yeah. being there as it is. You know, just dealing with this shit of a situation and just being truthful to the character. I mean, he doesn't have any of those big Oscar moments or clips that one would expect. I mean, especially in American cinema, you would see there is this one moment in a film where it's your big dramatic scene that can get you awards he doesn't have that it's just so true to the character right. and just so true to the story and that makes me love this performance more i mean this character is not asking for any sympathy but we have understood that through his empathy as an actor on how to convey clearly this character's journey and experience so yeah he is a terrific actor and i would love to see more of his work nice. yeah. i think we have a lot of time to catch up with his works because <laughs> we have a lot of time <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Now I would like to ask you, what are your favorite scenes or memorable scenes in this film? Okay, so it's I guess it's bad to use the word favorite, but I really like the execution of the scene where, because um, it's so normal that uh, the openings or the second scene in the locker room before the gas chamber, where the people start stripping and walking into a chamber and the chamber gets closed and then you have this slow zoom in and then you start hearing the banging the screaming the crying for a long time and then silence so that's that's actually one of my favorite scenes but i feel terrible using the word favorite <laughs> okay um the other yeah the other scene that i really like is uh the the ending because it gives us hope you have this guy hey uh let's walk a few kilometers here east west whatever and then we'll find the base and then we'll join the rebels and then we're gonna fight the war uh but it never happens you just see this uh this boy which kind of clo closes or finishes Saul's plot in the story that he thinks is a ghost and a vision which is the the shot uh uh, well, it's not a long take, but it's a long uh, shot in in time. Like I think it's like uh, thirty seconds, maybe. We just see Saul smiling for the first time, and then we cut to this boy outside the barn. Maybe another twenty seconds. So it's um, you kind of think that it's a ghost, but then what I love is the twist that 
it's not a ghost it's an actual boy and it's a i'm assuming it's a german boy because it's you know you have the blonde hair blue eyes thing um and then the boy runs off and then a soldier grabs him and then we hear gunfire and everyone's dead in the barn you just know it so that's um i like that sort of twist from hope to once again uh hopelessness so yeah. <laughs> i'm actually proud of my mom because she got it right i thought it was a ghost she thought that's not a ghost that's a real boy and <laughs> i'm proud of her because we watched it together um and wow. i think you mentioned something about him smiling that i think throughout the film he's been dead and he acknowledges it but the moment yep. that he came alive with that smile was the moment when ironically he accepts whatever happens next and he met his fate he died but you know at least he did not die i don't know it's, i don't want to sound pretentious or ironic but he did not die a dead man you know he had something to li live for yeah like he, you know he was alive in the last moments of his life that's a, that's a story that's that's that probably happened for sure back in the day attempts to escape and then they just couldn't get away it's just too overrun with uh enemies yeah. um i would all mention how horrifying like we've talked about in the first sequence is just because of how matter of fact it is it did not glamorize what happened or it did not uh like right. it's all matter of fact he's helping these people these people are being lied to. They enter the gas chamber. They're dead. They're waiting for them to die. And then they bring out the bodies. And then it's another cycle. It's just a matter of fact. And it makes it more horrifying to how normalized violence is in this kind of situation. Yeah. Yep. That's a yeah. daily uh, it's routine. It's more horrifying because it should not be a daily routine. But, oh gosh. Um, the forced dancing sequence in the clinic. Uh, that's really horrifying. <laughs> how he right. was mocked and you know how the, you know he's supposed to go along with this prank but when he finally went along he was sent out of the room yeah that's another horrifying scene to just how discrimination is embodied on this level and for me the most um memorable scene for me is the night scene when these people are being delivered and they're mentioned that the ovens are full they're gonna go straight to the pit and he's looking for a rabbi yeah, and he yeah. was confused for um a person to be killed and he sees the flamethrowers and the you know how systemic it is like get naked shoot in the head throw next get naked shoot in the head throw in the pit and that is just one of the most horrifying scenes I have probably ever watched, even more so than the films with graphic violence. I remember when I first watched it, and I remember looking away from the scene, from the screen, I mean, and I was screaming. I don't remember what I screamed, but I screamed something to the effect of, what's happening? As a as a watcher, I had that experience. It's, it's just this is how low humanity went then. 
And I can imagine that this kind of situation is also happening right now, maybe in places that we don't know, or with this pandemic, with more people abusing their power, this could also happen. So it just attacked me on a very yeah. visceral level. I mean, I I had chest pains even a while ago. I had ch- I'm I'm healthy, but I had chest pains, and then I was screaming. <laughs> the only right. difference is that on my first watching, my oh. first watch. I looked away from the screen. I just cannot handle it. I mean, there's not, there's not even, there's not even blood in there, but it's just a horrifying sight. But this time, yeah, I made it a point to look at the screen, look at the horror, because I think, you know, I, I just feel like it. I think it's time to really confront the horrors of what's going on in the film and in our lives right now. And uh, I mean, just having um, not just in films, but we've also seen violence in real life and all these things happening all at once um i guess that's why somehow uh, for me even watching it for the first time i didn't have a strong reaction but i understand in in some portions if other people would you know just start weeping because yeah it's horrifying you get shot or you get naked and then you get shot you jump into a pit and then you're burned alive. So that's that's pretty yeah. crazy. So, um, yeah. and I tweeted definitely. a while ago after watching this film, like this film was made in 2015, and this is obviously a film about the Holocaust, but it's it strikes a different chord this time. I mean, fascism, state-sponsored violence, makeshift masks, ring any bells? <laughs> I mean. But yeah, it's just yeah. A, a horrifying reminder of where we can be if we tolerate hatred and hatred becomes systematized discrimination and systematized discrimination ultimately becomes genocide. So Yeah, um, from what we uh, know about the Nazis and how they operated, it's very similar to how um, well, governments who, uh, let's say, uh, control their the state police and the military it's it's pretty much uh how they build loyalty how they get people to follow orders it's pretty much the same thing happening today and it's a good it's always uh gonna be somehow it's it's always it's always gonna be relevant is what i'm trying to say because these things uh sad to say are still happening even though it's not as uh, direct as as a holocaust type event but there's things happening in the background that like you said we don't know about that are just as cruel and, and violent um yeah and they're so, more careful now because yes. it's before we did not have the yes, surveillance exactly. cameras and the drones i mean that's why there are now regimes yeah, silencing even, journalists because it's so easy to get stories out now Exactly, and even social media. So anyone with a camera, anyone with a phone can report. Um, and the government will have a harder time. Like like with China right now, they're trying to rewrite the narrative. Uh, as early as now, um, there are posts from Wuhan Twitter uh, about pamphlets being handed out in Wuhan about um, how their president sort of... Um, uh, 
saved Wuhan. So that's kind of the story. There's a press release that was kind of um, too early because <laughs> at that time, there was still at least a month before it actually ended. when They declared zero new cases. So, and recently, if you've seen on the news as well, you know, there's this, not sure if he's the, if he's Chinese, the the Chinese embassy spokesperson for the for the U.S. or or something they're trying to blame it on a U.S. soldier who maybe had the virus travel to Wuhan and, and spread it there so things like that um, which whether I mean of course we'll never know if it's if it's true because because we don't hear about that anymore uh, about that sort of narrative. But it sounds, you know, it sounds not real. It sounds invented after the fact. So, um, so these days, there's a new sort of war, I think. So this is <laughs> moving a little bit away from the film. But if the Nazis were alive these days, or, you know, if that stuff still happened, they wouldn't say what they're actually doing, but they're going to try to twist the narrative. They're going to say that, uh, these guys that we incinerated, they had an infectious disease and it, it was dangerous. And to save a thousand people, we had to sacrifice, or to save a billion people, we have to sacrifice a million people, something like that. So, um, no, I, yeah, <laughs> no, I totally agree I don't know what about, I'm talking about the relevance Stop of this me. film because it yeah. all comes from. A hate and reconfiguring the narrative and then shifting the blame towards a group of people that allows people to concede and be okay with this system of um, violence yeah. committed to a specific group of people. I mean, if, if we remember, it's not just the Jews, it's also the disabled and the gays and the Poles, the elderly. So, the elderly, this yeah, is. Yeah hate towards almost everyone so if we allow hate to happen son of salt is a reminder of what happens when power is powers are unchecked and and hate and is yep. you know the ruling thing over land so yeah uh really relevant scarily relevant i must say uh yeah uh any final thoughts on son of Saul? Well, um, final thoughts. So actually, um, my initial thoughts were my final, final thoughts. That it's um, the things I liked are the the atmosphere, um, how it is not over dramatized. Uh, the new things I learned during our discussion about uh, keeping the violence blurred or in the background. I like that the cinematography. Leading to that, uh, the sound design, now that you mention it, the crackling fire and the screams were so layered. And uh, the word favorite sounds so bad, but it's it's really a, oh, I'm about to say it, it was a great moment. No, it was, it was. Yeah, as technical... a film watcher and as a filmmaker, we <laughs> nice. appreciate those things. Yeah. yeah. Wow, this is horrifying. But at the same time, I can sort of imagine the. Adobe Premiere timeline and all the layers of sound. So yeah, um, and the, the things we can learn though, the things we can learn. So, which is from our discussion, it's interesting because you have, uh, first of all, acting, which is something I wasn't really focused on. 
because the story's pretty uh, pretty simple actually. But for for the acting, those scenes where he showed his restraint, so though that's very um, it can be used as a character study, like if we're making films in the future and we need someone who is stoic and playing things internally and not having any emotion where actually the emotion is more like grief or or a sort of depression something like that uh Saul would be the perfect character study for for that um and a thing I mentioned at the beginning um no scenes are wasted on on any sort of subplots. Now, I'm not saying subplots are bad. I actually love subplots depending on the movie. But, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to make a period drama and it's, it's heavy enough, I don't want to know, I don't want to know extra stuff about, you know, the titos and titas, the aunts and uncles or the other characters. I don't want to hear about your backstory. Um, since it's, it's, an, it's a day in a life type movie we just find out about the characters as is so i i, I like that because it um it's one technique or thing we can do to focus on the content of the story and you know not confuse the audience with too much uh side adventures or subplots. so that's it those are my final thoughts on son of saw Yeah, so we're not gonna discuss Son of Saul's journey to Oscar gold. So it premiered at Cannes, where it won a Grand Prix. And this was Hungary's right. second win. There you go. Since the first one is 1981, mm. and its ninth nomination. So the last one was in 1988. So I mentioned that Jeez, because wow. the last, the the previous winner from Hungary, Mephisto, and the last nominee before Son of Saul, Hanusen, was directed by Isvan Shabo. Isvan Shabo was Geza Rurig's teacher in film school. Mm, interesting (laughs) damn research so um the student (laughs) surpasses the master and yeah Yeah, Son of Salt premiered in the United States in Telluride and had a limited release on December 18 by Sony Pictures Classics it won Golden Globe Uh, Critics Choice and BAFTA for the following year um Box office in the United right. States is 1.7 million. International is 4.9, and a worldwide gross of 6.7 million dollars. Mm-hmm. So, what was the the budget? Is there any info I about the budget? I have it here. So its budget is in euros. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. 1.5 million euros. Uh, yeah. Eh, okay, okay. So okay. I think it's an easy win at the Oscars, given what happened before. So, you think the Oscars? No, are I think an Son of Saul win. winning at the Oscars was an easy win, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, 
right. So I okay. think to just illustrate more about the race, let's look at the nominees. So the nominees that year were Embrace of the Serpent from Colombia, Mustang from France, Thieve mm-hmm. from Jordan, and A War from Denmark. Have you seen this? Jordan. Oh, um, actually, now that you mention it, I've seen them all. Uh, but, you know, it was a few years ago, quote unquote. <laughs> so, but uh, I do remember the basic sort of storylines. Um, so, yeah, what do you think about those nominees, the- Carlos? I mean, I am, I am basing this on my opinions on January 2017. Because that's just a, that's the time I've seen all of these <laughs> right. together, like one bunch. Um, I think the closest to, I mean, I, I, I would say, again, it's an easy win for Son of Soul. But I think the number two is Mustang from France. Because it was a Golden Globe nominee. It was a Critics' Choice nominee. Yes. It was a BAFTA nominee as right. well from the following year. Uh, also a Cannes premiere, director's Fortnite. What do you think of Mustang? Uh, actually, um, my overall rank uh, before I go into Mustang is, interestingly enough, um, Embrace of the Serpent for me is number one. Mustang is the second. Third would be Son of Saul. Right? <laughs> interesting. So it, it, it's interesting because the second one that you all said was Mustang. And here's why. This Mustang for me, it hit an emotional chord. I'm not a Turkish girl. Uh, <laughs> we're not surprise. Turkish girls. <laughs> so, but we're not Turkish girls. Okay. For, oh, this is kind of, oh no. I, I do have a thought. <laughs> uh, I mean, hmm, were they 18 at the time? No, I mean, I'm just I'm trying to say that. Wow, they're, they're beautiful, right? I mean, besides being, I'm pretty sure they're all actresses, maybe. But the casting is interesting because they picked um, attractive girls of all ages. So it, it's like, um, uh, and then at first you're not sure why, because the opening scene, okay, they're just playing innocently, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, there's this old lady who tells on their mom and says, hey, these girls, they were playing with boys. And that kind of, I think that's great. Because in the first ah, three minutes, five minutes, it's established or already what, what the issue in this film is, is how uh, Turkish province, provincial society treats girls. So they're, they don't ask about the girls themselves. If you're seen with a boy, uh, you're instantly a whore. That's crazy, right? So that's like, what? And then, uh, um, so, and then, of course, as a, as I'm, I'm not a Turkish girl, but, and of course, I, I live in the Philippines, grew up here, but that's crazy. That's crazily conservative. Uh, and uh, at the start, I'm already like mad. I'm already angry because, you know, I'm, I'm from UP. We're, we're liberated people over here. So, it's it's so interesting, and then the uh, the ending, spoiler alert. <laughs> so the ending of Mustang is so beautiful, and how the little girl with her other little girl sister, they find a way to escape their situation. I think that's despite growing up, despite their home being turned into a prison, um, 
they still find the courage and the resourcefulness to escape their situation. So in the very ending, when they find the, 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 the teacher, who is the teacher at the beginning of the film, uh, I cried. <laughs> I, had, I had to cry because it's a very emotional scene. I'm like, ah, oh, they got what they wanted. So nice. And then that that's a natural end. The film ends there when they went to Istanbul. So I actually have a lot more thoughts about Mustang. But would you like me to continue or do you want to have a go at it first? Or? No, go ahead. Uh, I'll be brief later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Um, so uh, another the crazy scene that I remember is that or I guess the mood, the mood first. There's just five girls. And okay, they're being, uh, the eldest gets married. Okay, that's pretty cool. You see that it's an arranged marriage. Things are not so bad. But then you start seeing um, that, wait a minute, this film, every, right in the middle of the film, every three scenes, another girl gets married. So then it becomes crazy because, whoa, um, at first I was kind of okay with it because, okay, you know, that's not so bad. But then you start seeing uh, the other sister was fine, but Selma, uh, the, one of the girls, um, she actually did not want to marry the guy. So then you get a feel, because I have no idea how Turkish marriages work, so you get a feel that, oh, crap, they're being married against their will. And then you have another sister who is younger. And now this is like the first sister who is clearly not 18 or is clearly just a kid and she gets married off and then it starts getting dark because for outsiders like us you know oh wow child marriages <laughs> nope i um of course it, it's cultural in other countries but um you know personally i'm against that it's child marriages so uh and it, it gets dark because at first it's okay they're older but then it gets younger and younger and you realize that all of them are eventually going to get married off. So the 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 third, uh, the third to the youngest, she actually um, spoiler alert, she actually kills herself um, before she gets married. So that's pretty insane. And then you have these last two characters, where the youngest uh, actually starts um, throughout the film. She was like learning how to drive, making friends with people. Who she can conspire with to escape, um, and I don't remember exactly, but in the beginning, when the old lady tells on them uh, to the mom, it was the little girl who is angry at the old lady and answers back. So it's it's a very um, it's a very good choice as a as a scriptwriter or or the director, a very good choice to have the youngest drive change. Because you know the the hope is in is in the kids. If you don't rebel, if you don't move physically, move to another location, um, you won't you won't get away from uh, from this system. Uh, th- uh, there's a lot of details in the movie, but since I've seen it so long ago, <laughs> I I don't remember all of them. But I guess the most um, memorable scene is uh, when. When one of them gets married and the the husband is looking for blood oh my gosh, on yes. the bed. And when he does, yeah, 
And that's like, I'm like, why? <laughs> and then I find out in the next scene, they're at the hospital and there's a the dad with a gun, you know, he's like asking. They want the, to test the girl if her hymen is still there. So the husband was worried that she wasn't a virgin. So I'm like, whoa, even the husband isn't on the side of the girls necessarily. Like it's in, I mean, why does that, why does virginity matter so much in this culture? Um, of course, there's purity, blah, 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 all those ideas. But um, it, it's, it's just sad to watch that, you know, this is the, we're in the modern age. And I guess um, in a way we're privileged that virginity and child marriages or even arranged marriages are not, are not a thing in our culture. So it's, it's very um, uh, relatable. Somehow, where, where Son of Saul is a, I mean, if we're looking at all the other movies, they're all five over five, right? They're all the best of the best their country had to offer. But relatability wise, Mustang was the film that I sort of related to the most because of the content. Um, that's it. That's actually uh, all my thoughts about <laughs> Mustang. What about, what do you uh, well, think? I remember watching. <laughs> It, it's actually not January, it's June of 2017. I just remember it to have so much life. And it just moves on a very steady pace. And the characters feel alive. And the thing is, this is such a nuanced film that it takes its very clear voice on how it locates these women. They are in an oppressive, conservative society. But... It's never didactic. It's never on the nose. I think um, with message movies, it is such a danger when you're already spelling it out for the audience. And the beauty of Mustang is that it just unfolds the events on such an unpretentious way that the message is in the storytelling. It doesn't have to have a big moment of like, oh, that's why these women, these women are oppressed or something like that. No, it's doing everything through the storytelling and it's director, right. I'm going to have to pronounce her name, uh, Denise Gamze Ergiven. Uh, she is such a wonderful director. Oh. Uh, she's she's co-written this yes. with Alice Winokur, yes. another wonderful filmmaker in her own right. Yeah, Mustang is, I think my number, I, Mustang is not only I think is the number two during the Oscar race I think it's also my personal number two how about your number one Embrace of the Serpent okay uh, Embrace of the Serpent is a masterpiece that's all I have to say but you know, I have a lot more to say but first it's it's, um, it's, it's my bias uh, so to give you a bit of a background I'm into the heavy stuff, the European stuff, like Bergman, Tarkovsky, Bresson, Godard, like those four guys. So this this film had mastery. There was visual poetry. There was top-notch cinematography. Uh, not just in the... And when I say cinematography, it's the shots themselves. Not necessarily the just the lighting or color, because it's in black and white but the composition of the shots um, and, and, their, uh, and their throwback 
to older movies in the 60s. Um, there's a lot that happens in Embrace of the Serpent, but I guess for our listeners, it's about uh, the film is based on two accounts um, of, of scientists, their travel journals, and what they encountered in the Amazon River. So there's a very powerful story that's also very relevant that's at the same time timeless because it's about indigenous tribes and the environment so um i like the i like the idea that uh they kept mentioning that um each tribe oh well in the movie we discover that each tribe is very separate each amazonian tribe has its own rules and each of them have a different ally. So there are some tribes that ally themselves with Spanish missionaries, or they sort of submit to them. Others who are working in rubber plantations as slaves, but with the help of other European powers, they they uh, they liberate themselves from from that. So it's it's very interesting. Each tribe has their own history and backstory, and of course, with the main story itself, um, so there are two scientists, and there's this one character, Karam Kate, and Karam Kate is this sort of uh, man who lives alone. Uh, he's not part of a tribe, and at first we think he's a bit crazy, but he's actually part of a proud tribe of warriors that have been overtaken by a robber plantation. So the interesting thing is these two scientists, they're from different time periods. One is from the past. One is from also the past, but he came after the first scientist. So what Karam Kati does is he actually has the opportunity to join them both on their adventure. And their goal is the same, to get to this magical flower, basically. And this flower is special because it's raised by his people and supposedly only his people know how to raise it and it has magical medicinal properties um, the first scientist wants to use it for medicine the second scientist or botanist wants to use it for for war so it's inferred that this is like pre-world war one or pre-world war two somewhere and they need the plant for um for a better version of rubber to make rubber more durable, which I guess they use in um, uh, tires, stuff like that. I don't know. I'm not a rubber expert, <laughs> but anyway, I'm going through the plot because it's so it's so nice. And if you haven't seen it, you should see Embrace of the Serpent. Um, and it's just mastery from the acting to the script writing. The script writing is actually like with Mustang. The storytelling tells it all. There's no one scene. Um, uh, for example, in Philippine cinema. Now, I'm not saying all Filipino films are like this, but there's going to be this one scene where the characters explain everything that just happened. For example, in Mustang, there's going to be a scene where, do you know why you have to get married? Do you know our culture? You know, Maybe a scene like that where the character explains the culture. But that doesn't happen in Mustang. It doesn't happen in Embrace of the Serpent. Um, yeah, the story just happens. And it's a sad story because you see these uh, 
dying tribes and you see the distrust between the tribes and you see how Western man or materialism has corrupted some of the tribes, you see how Spanish Catholicism has ruined one of the tribes and turned it into a drug sex cult or a combination between paganism and Catholicism. So um, it's, uh, it's interesting. And then the ending, spoiler alert, let's go straight to the ending because I uh, might be talking too much about Embrace of the Serpent now. But um, going straight to the ending, the, uh, we're with the second scientist. So the first scientist was years ago. He's gone and died. He never got the flower. Um, the second scientist successfully climbs a mountain with Karam Kate, the guide. And... He finally shares the final flower. Now, the scientist wanted to take it home with him, but Karamkate wants him to, he wants to grind this final flower. And he wants, uh, he wants to drug uh, the European guy. Because what he's saying is, um, you're going to use this thing for war. You lied to me. So when I thought we were supposed to just use this and share this last piece of culture together, so and then there's this there's this message in the film that um, at the end of the film it mentions that this this the film is dedicated to all those tribes whose whose song we will never know. That's something I remember about the movie. Um, it's it's what the film is about: the unknown people of the world and the stories that we will never hear and never know. So it's very sad because. Before this movie, I wasn't really thinking about indigenous people. So, you know, um, fiction or documentaries, they, they remind us of that. The world is a larger place and there's so much magic in it and uh, that we'll never find out about because all we know is what we know. So it's a, it's a good film because it's, for me, it's new, it's fresh, it's, it's relevant and it has a powerful message uh the fact that it's very well made masterfully made technically as well is just a bonus but story the story itself uh already uh wins in my book okay uh embrace of the serpent is my number four on these five i Totally agree on how yeah. exquisite the filmmaking is. It is, it has a haunting beauty to it. But just on a personal level, I think there were moments when yeah. I did not connect to it anymore. I think it is, but also this is a film that is, it doesn't feed you off the emotions, you know. It lets you absorb the story on your own pace, on your own time. It's never emotionally in your face. And maybe somewhere along the way, I got lost. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I do appreciate its beauty and <laughs> on how special it is because it is, and, and if we're going to talk about personal preferences, that's for me, but on the importance, I think this is a really important story because of how we have kept these stories from being told around the world. And this is also quite major because this is the first Colombian film to be nominated for an Academy Award. So I hope the story of this film, you know, 
um, be given a spotlight. I mean, that's one of the perks of being nominated for an Academy Award is the attention it gets. So, yeah. Yeah. Which one do you want to do first? Thebe or Awar? Actually, um, Awar is something I've seen more recently. So we can start with that. And actually, for for Awar, uh, my only comment on that, what's notable is the sound design as well. Uh, I have just basic computer speakers, but watching these films, from what I remember, with Awar, uh, this... The sound was technically just superior. When things explode, they travel from left to right. You know, I think you know what I'm saying. There's a there's a surround sound quality to it. The others did uh, besides um, well, Son of Saul. Besides that, did not have. So for sound design, this gets all the points in the war. Um, and what I like about the war, and I'm not gonna talk too much about it because it's actually a very simple story. Um. To go over the story very quickly, basically, a commanding officer orders an airstrike on a home, civilian home, without knowing who's inside, and ends up killing 11 people, eight um, children and three women. And the thing there is, uh, during that time that you ordered the airstrike, they were at war. They were in a war. So it's... it's um, that's the main conflict of the story. It's it's very sympathetic with the soldiers. So if for Mustang, we're sympathizing with the girls, in this film, it's sympathetic with the soldiers. It shows you the humanity of the soldiers and their, their dilemma. Whenever they have to make a kill, uh, there's so many rules of engagement, which is good um, to follow. But sometimes there are cases where like if you see the movie, it's uh, it's terrible that he kill uh, that these in- civilians died as a cause of his actions. But at the same time, it's so hard to blame the officer as well because in in this case, they were being shot at. And and the problem with the Taliban being the Taliban, they use women and children as shields. So that's something that's very uh, obvious in a previous scene where a sniper uh, only does the kill shot when 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 a child uh, steps away from the main target. So it's it's very hard. Um, anyone can be a terrorist. Uh, they're in a foreign land. They have these rules to follow, and if they make a mistake, there are legal uh, repercussions. So it's it's um. And what's good is that the lead guy, and I like this decision by the scriptwriter, the the main character who was charged with, with these war crimes, he wanted to surrender. And interesting in the story, it's the lawyer who wanted him to lie. And and his wife also wanted him to lie. There's this nice line that I remember. Those kids are dead. What about the three kids living at home? So it's it's kind of uh it it's it's morally ambiguous because half of the film is like at war another third of the film or the next half is like a trial so it's like it's hard because um the film obviously sides with the soldier but at the same time it shows you this side of the law which which you know he did not kind of 
she did not follow. There are rules. Uh, they have to identify an enemy before they can order an airstrike. In this case, he he panicked and ordered an airstrike without confirming an enemy. So it's um, I have mixed feelings about a war because of that because the film the film um, doesn't really judge the soldier. So as as the audience, we don't judge him as well. Um, but it doesn't condemn him either. And we actually find out during the trial that the worst thing that could happen to him was four years as the maximum sentence. So, wow, all of that, and it's actually just a four-year penalty for 11 people getting killed, innocent people, for your mistake. So it's kind of like you, uh, you realize that either way, he gets off easy. Um, but I remember the final scene is pretty simple. He just looks at his kid and then he spends the rest of his night outdoors smoking. So okay, he feels emotionally guilty. He feels bad about it. But there's nothing that anyone can do anymore. The trial is over. So it's, um, again, a war very well done, very well everything acted, directed. Um, the guy who was accused, the commanding officer, is a great actor, as well as the lawyer. Those are notable performances. The lawyer lady who was judging him. Um, um, let's see. So it's, it's hard because it raises the question, um, the lives, that, uh, the weight of a life or how, Im how important a life is, is being questioned in this movie. Um, as well as if lives are on an equal level as yours. Um, maybe the filmmaker is trying to show you how hard it is to make decisions during a war that you can accidentally kill civilians without meaning to because it's either them or you. If you didn't order the airstrike, they would have died. That's the argument. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's hard to think about because the film doesn't make a decision. So now me as an audience member, I have to decide which lives are more important. Um, a part of me, though, if, if we're talking about ideas beyond the film, because the filmmaker was siding with the soldier. You know, um, Beyond the film, personally, of course, um, I'm siding with the civilians because in this case, they just live there. Like in the Philippines, as you know, there's a very recent case of innocent people getting killed but uh it, but i would say it's different because in this film uh you were there you saw what happened and they his uh platoon really would have died if uh, if he hadn't made that decision so it's it's morally confusing <laughs> so actually even at the end of it right now i'm not sure um i know where i stand but as a film I wish it took a stand. Like, maybe he gets away during the trial because his lawyer lies for him. Um, and he's forced to lie by his wife, basically. So he can raise his kids. Maybe there's something else that happens so he doesn't get away so clean. You know, it's... um Because it's, it, it's, it's too clean. He just gets away with it. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, again, this is this is just my personal take. 
uh, technically it's a good thing. Tobias Lindholm as the director. I think a war is a pretty uncomplicated film. It's, it's I think it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I would say there's nothing new to it, but it works as a film in itself. I would agree with you that I don't think it took a stand because it's more interested in trying to empathize with a soldier's experience, removing the political context, maybe. So, I mean, it's fine, I think. Um, I mean, this is from Denmark, and Denmark has had five nominations this decade, and <laughs> and it feels like a war is one of those nominations where like it's a fine film it works but it doesn't have to be there like it i don't think it's representative as one of the right. five best yeah yeah it's not like oscar level so, sorry to say it's a fine film but i mean yeah. compared to the other nominees yeah. uh, i mean for example happen. i don't even i don't I would say I would I don't love Embrace of the Serpent, but I understand why it's there. A war is like okay. <laughs> no no no, I don't oh, I don't so wanna mean. be mean. It works as a film. It's just that I don't think it's yeah, yeah, yeah. that remarkable. Um the last one yes. is Phoebe. So yeah. Phoebe like is a cute kid. Phoebe is a, a short story and they made it into a film and they have a lot of um, I liked everything about it except a part of me feels like they use too much uh, music there's a lot of lyrical moments where music plays quite loudly even in the credits as a sort of exclamation point but you know with the other entries we don't see that even in a war we don't see that the use of music too loudly and this this uh this movie uses it too many times i think that it undermines the the, the acting which is really good i love the bandit character i love the i love the white guy they're all solid here um i, I would say the story is pretty straightforward and simple as well with a with a bit with the emphasis on same with embrace of the serpent how modernity corrupts tribal life or corrupts uh, human society. And it's actually all I have to say about it because it is straightforward. Um, um, yeah. I remember having some problems with the pace of the film, but I really think that the lead actor, the kid, was very good. I see very, this, again, very. this film I don't love, but I understand why it made it in. This is actually the first film from Jordan to get nominated. So yeah, pretty um, memorable nights for Colombia and Jordan. Right. Uh, yeah, Phoebe is also a straightforward film. So like, okay. Um, but yeah, so these were the five nominees. Let's now go to the shortlisted ones. So the, the films that were shortlisted that were not nominated were The Brad New Testament from Belgium, The Fencer from Finland, Labyrinth of Lice from Germany, and Viva from Ireland. Have you have any thoughts on these four? Uh, actually, I haven't seen any of them, so I have no thoughts. I'm sorry. But what do you think? Uh, 
let me know uh, what they're about. Yeah. Um, the brand new testament is about people that are gonna die. I mean, I, I am picking up from my memory. Uh, people that are gonna die, and there is this God, the Father, that is depicted as an angry guy. Oh, so he's the one handling the deaths <laughs> of the people. So oh, okay. yeah, I think this film is. Um, as a religious person, I would actually objectively say this is kind of blasphemous. But at the same time, I am interested in the themes that it's exploring because it's exploring themes of death and knowing when you're going to die and how you spend your life. <laughs> I mean, I have my own biases against it, but it works, I guess. Right. And then The Fencer from Finland. Mm -hmm. um, this one, I think, is the one that came close to a nomination. Um, it was also a Golden Globe nominee, the same thing as the Brand New Testament. It's about... A teacher that came to like a school, like a countryside school, and he inspired the students to go fencing. And this small right. town um, fencing team became like a big deal. So you know, it, it the story feels kind of familiar, but okay, it works when you watch it. Yeah, yeah feel Inspirational good. Teacher, yeah, <laughs> the the coach coach Carter story yeah. sports and yeah. And then um, um, yeah. Labyrinth of Lies is from Germany. It's fine. I actually don't remember it <laughs> anymore. But then I watched Viva from Ireland, which I think is a lovely, lovely story. Mm. It's about a cross-dresser. I, I forgot his day job, but he is a cross-dressing singer at a club at night and or a lip-synker. And then his father that is in jail, I think it was a boxer, was released. So a cross-dressing son and a boxer father comes together. And it's like how they navigate the situation with them entering into each other's lives. And ultimately the father accepting his child's identity. This is a really beautiful story. Right. And out of these four, um, this was the one that I think was a surprise inclusion from the shortlist, but I think this is actually um, even more deserving than more than half of the nominees. More! <laughs> no, yeah. Let's get to the tea. No, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, on, 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 your, on your podcast, on this podcast, The One Inch Barrier, the previous episodes was it was like a, a fantastic woman so i would i'm gonna listen to that because i love that movie um yeah yeah um yeah going on yeah Viva, so yeah. now let's just give a, like a short uh shout out to the other nominees that year in other categories that are also not in english so boy right. in the world from brazil animated feature when Marnie was there from Japan, oh. animated feature. Oh, when yes. Marnie was there. And then okay. The Look of Silence. This is a multinational production documentary feature. Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. Ukraine, US, UK, also documentary feature. And a very interesting nominee, the 100-year-old mm -hmm. man who climbed out of the window and disappeared. From Sweden, makeup and hairstyling. Thailand. Oh, I thought it was Thailand uh, because, you know, Uncle Boney who recalls his past <laughs> lives. So they kind of make titles like that. So it's 
It's actually yeah, there's Swedish. actually a Swedish series <laughs> the, like about this hundred year old man. So, oh. but this one I've seen. Uh, did you like any of these five? I think when Marnie was there, you liked. Oh yeah, I've I've seen when Marnie was there. Um, to be honest, it was good, but the story, the the Studio Ghibli stuff from the '90s was is still su- superior. I would say it's it's still a good story, but it doesn't have the same magic as Spirited Away or Mononoke or Laputa, <laughs> my favorite Laputa, ah. the castle in the sky. So <laughs> anyway, but uh, so I, I didn't actually know that animated films can compete on the same. Can you tell me more about that? I didn't know that they competed with as long, uh, features. As long as animated, the... as long as animated features, uh, complete a certain uh, qualifications, like playing in an LA theater for seven consecutive days, um, wherever they come from, they can oh. be eligible for animated feature, and they can also be eligible in best picture or something like that. So yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, now let's move to the submissions. Right. So this year we have 82 submissions. 80 nice. were accepted. So Afghanistan's Utopia was disqualified based on having too much English. Mm. And then Panama was not on the final list. And Whoa. first timer is Paraguay with Cloudy Times. So do you have any submissions that you would like to mention? Uh, lately, none. <laughs> for if we're talking about the international film scene, but that's because I haven't yeah. seen much. Um, the only, I guess, I just follow a few fan sites and film pages on Facebook to find out what the best international films there are uh, these days. But I don't actively seek out. Um, international features because it's so hard to find out about them or you know find yes. copies <laughs> if you know what I mean but that's the main challenge but if it were more mainstream and marketed I can I can find out um, about it but yeah sadly since that's the case for foreign submissions not I don't have yeah, enough I think us in the Philippines the clo- the 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 closest way for us to watch these submissions is when they have a sidebar in a fil- in a local film festival they usually pick submissions and it's usually just a one time screening so yes they do unfortunately yes. you have yeah yeah for example um sorry uh yeah um like 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 parasite we've brought it to our theaters here we've screened it in smaller independent theater chains so and of course, we have our film festivals from our embassies, the French Film Festival, the Italian Film Festival, the Silent Film Festival, the Japanese Film Festival that happens in, in UP once a year. These things are great because they, they bring the best that those countries have to offer. To yeah, and people watch. <laughs> so yeah, there's an audience. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, interestingly, do. A Fantastic Woman, I, I saw that with a one-time screening in Cinema One Originals. Wow. I skipped nice, the nice. local features. It's such a good movie. For <laughs> the foreign submissions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I yeah. don't want to be like a, a bragger or 
like a shitty person, but out of this 80 that were accepted, I was actually able to watch 40. Don't ask me how I was able to have access to them. I was able to watch 40. Yeah, I'm sure you access Yeah, wink, wink. Um, winking, yeah, but winking. I think yeah. I'm just gonna um, first mention I think the surprise um, snubs that did not make the shortlist. Um, the assassin from Taiwan, um, Hu Xiaoxin, Ooh. if I remember the right, the right name, a Critics' Choice nominee, a BAFTA nominee, such an artful, a martial arts, uh, not martial arts, wuxia film. Yeah, I mean, I don't love it, but I was just stunned by the filmmaking of that film. And then The Club from Chile, or a Golden Globe nominee from Pablo Larraín. It's about a house where they house priests with cases, like a pedophile and then whatever. And then things took a turn when a priest that raped arrived and then his victim killed himself in front of the house. So that put things in motion, that film. So... And then... Good Night Mommy from Austria, quite uh, known in internet circles. It's a horror film from Austria. And then uh, I think I'm just going to mention like a quick rundown. The Second Mother from Brazil, lovely lead performance. Rams from Iceland, darkly funny. Lamb from Ethiopia, lovely, lovely film. The Wave from Norway. It's on par with the Hollywood disaster blockbusters in terms of visual effects and storytelling. And How to Win a Checkers wow, Every you. Time from Thailand. Such a simple, beautiful story. And I think we haven't really nominated any Southeast Asian films, except one, Vietnam in 1993. I think mm-hmm. this is one of the blind spots of this category, the foreign language film categories. They're not really able to acknowledge films from Southeast Asia. I mean, if we're going to talk Asia, it's usually just Japan or Japan. I mean, Korea just got nominated this year <laughs> right. for the first yeah, time. Korea, what the yeah. heck? It has a great cinema. Wow. So, yeah. I think this is one of the blind spots yeah. of the Academy and the category, which we can fix if they want. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not going to go through all of the 40. There's a lot. And then... Let's move quickly to the films that were not submitted, that were in a conversation, like why they were not submitted or something like that. Deepan from France, one palm door at Cannes. Mm. That win at Cannes received mixed reception, but yeah, it's from France. And then Wolf Totem from China. It was initially reported by the Hollywood Reporter as China's submission. And then it was not submitted. Um, listen. Here's the thing with China. They don't know how to pick the film to submit. (laughs) Because they're really concerned with censorship. So anything that makes their country look bad, they don't submit it. Even if they are the most famous filmmakers from their country. I am sorry to say that, but if they want to win this, they gotta submit the films that even, even the films that kind of make them look bad. That's not really hard to do. (laughs) And then... Victoria from Germany. This film is like two hours and 12 mm-hmm. minutes. I'm not, And it's all in one long take. It's not like 1917 with hidden chop chops. No, this is one long take for two hours and 12 minutes. Uh, it was only disqualified whoa, whoa, whoa. because 
there's a high percentage of the dialogue in English. But it is an amazing What? film. Amazing, amazing. I mean, it's not just because of the long take, but of the lighting and it's, oh my gosh. I mean, it, this is the real deal. It, by Birdman, by 1917, this is the real deal. Long, long take, two, and, two hours, 12 minutes, different locations. What's the, what's the title of, of this again? Victoria, and Germany. I forgot the director, but okay. actually, interestingly, because of how crucial the camera work is, I mean, usually when you watch a film at the end credits, is usually director and then writer and then producer and then blah, 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 blah. It's, usually, it's actually the first billing was for the cinematographer because of how right. the director really thought of how important and crucial and difficult the cinematography is for this film. So, yeah. Deserved. And then <laughs> Taxi from Iran. Uh, one Golden Bear at Berlin. The director is in a 20-year ban from filmmaking in Iran, and he still made this film in Iran. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, I mean, uh, in, the, in the Salesman episode, we talked about how in Iran there's really also censorship. Um, Jafar Panahi is unfortunately banned for for two decades to make a film, but he's still making films. Like, We talked about how he smuggled the film inside a cake so that he can bring the film outside the country and things like that. So, yeah. People find ways to get the story out, <laughs> even with censorship. I mean, it's harder, but you cannot really crush the human voice, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that's something that we can be thankful of that, you know, at least not yet and hopefully not ever. Uh, locally, we're not censored at all i think i see a lot of um let's say subversive stuff in independent cinema um that gets through uh except recently okay. uh, just <laughs> in december there was this there was this censored thing right in the um what's what film festival was that the one with Brilliant oh, Mendoza, yeah, in, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, TV no, no. Five. It's, it's, it's his, it's his own. Yeah, film. Yeah. His own film festival. Okay, <laughs> but but yeah, that's that's sad because there was that film that got censored, and the filmmaker, um, he wanted to share that, uh, himself, for for like for free, and people were like, no, fight for it, but coronavirus, so <laughs> everything got stopped anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we're we're we're. I mean, the 70s and the 80s were worse because the, before, you have to submit your film at the local, like, re, they would review the script. And then if you receive an okay, and then they would the oh, yeah, yeah. get made. So that's really how hard they worked in trying to censor content. Right now, I think they only censor it once the film is finished. Yeah, mm. we, we're gonna yeah. we're not gonna name names, but you know what I'm talking about. It's all the censorship is still <laughs> institutionalized. Um, but yeah, speaking of Brilliante Mendoza, uh, he had a film this year called Trap mm. or Taklub, which premiered at Cannes. Was not submitted. Um, actually, mm. this year we submitted General Luna. Yes. Really, General Luna. What do you think I about? Mean, I that? liked it when I watched it. But what do you think I think I, I'd have to go back to see yeah. its politics and all that. I mean, because I really appreciated at the time was like an enjoyable film. I mean, that was my thesis year. So like, yeah, I need some fun. And it was fun. And I think it was a discrepancy in local cinema because 
for a period film, an independently produced period film, to go big in the box office. That's a discrepancy in local cinema, but I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a good film, I think. Um, and the politics is fine. It's revolutionary and nationalistic and has some messages about uh, has a message about corruption and the usual stuff, you know, oppression, corruption, all the good stuff. Uh, so it's pretty good. And it has a nice death montage at the end. Spoiler alert. He, uh, Phenomenal performance he from John Arcelia. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But um, the only thing is, is the, uh, the qualities that we love about what we, the films we talked about, like Mustang and um, Son of Saul, the um, the under dramatization or, or the realistic feel of it, the the snappiness of the or sparseness of the dialogue. I wish those qualities were part of General Luna because you can be funny because it's kind of um, it's also a bit funny. There's a there's a lot of humor in this in General Luna, but there are also just a few scenes where the acting was a bit you know um, TV. And I mean uh, bad TV, not HBO. Yeah, <laughs> not talking about yeah. My my, really. my 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 conception. Uh, I'm talking of my, about my idea of TV is so changed now. <laughs> so that's a different topic. Why the acting is like that. So, <laughs> but yeah. Other than that, if they were able to fix the more overdramatic scenes and the music, it's uh, or even if they didn't fix it, it's still worth watching. Uh, worth the ticket there's some um, i love the scene where they burn the philippine flag ah it's so nice but um uh, or it's like it's like if they oh <laughs> it's like if they uh you know they're burning the flag but not because they hate the philippines it's because the current regime does not deserve our love so <laughs> uh it's 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 nice i would I like reiterate it. what you said Overall. The current regime does not deserve our flag. <laughs> yeah, wink, wink. So, you know. We're gonna... So, yeah. Thank you, thank you. I think we can now go to the final question of the evening. <laughs> Son of Saul. Uh, yes. so Was many, it so a deserving questions. winner? Uh, um, yes. Uh, although my personal choice is Embrace of a Serpent. Uh, it's a deserving win still because the only one who's undeserving to be on that list is <laughs> a war. <laughs> I don't want to be mean, but <sighs> anyway, the other films had qualities that made them great. But I would say um, I haven't seen the other nominees or, or, or the ones that were uh, shortlisted because um, I think Thebe is good. Thebe is new. It, I guess it, it looks fresh and it's, it's a good film, but compared to the others who had bigger stories, and, uh, they were more painful, more powerful. A war in Thebe, maybe not on the level of the others yet, but for talking about deserving any one of those films, Son of Saul, uh, Embrace, and Mustang, they all deserved it somehow. Uh, Son of Saul deserved it for the reasons we outlined before um, because it's 
it's horrifying and relevant, forever relevant. It's very well directed and acted. And through its technical stuff, like sound design and shallow focus cinematography, it it brought it it brought the the hol- the experience of the Holocaust to modern audiences, which is a refresher because <laughs> is that a bad word? Refresher. No, it's hey, totally this happened. a thing no, because um, we, we keep forgetting what's happening that. in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I loved uh, Inglorious Bastards for different reasons, but stylized stuff like the opening scene where there's this, you see this shot, she's hiding under the table. Also terrifying because we're wondering why are they so scared of this guy? Um, so yeah, we should always make films about our oppressors. That should never go away. And having it win is uh, is important. It's a testament to the fact that you know we should always be critical of our leaders. That's it. <laughs> so yes, it deserved it. Um, so my personal favorite, once again, was Embrace of the Serpent. But all, all of them deserved it, except for Warren Thieves. So... <laughs> That's a very mean opinion, but Mustang, oof, uh, wow. Embraced, wow. So I'm so, wow. Theme, uh, war, uh. So that's my final reaction. Um, what about you? Uh, I'm mean to the award theme, but it's, you know why. So. It's in my top 10 for 2015. Uh, I think Son of Saul is one of those rare instances where the front runner all along is really my number one. Yeah, I think uh, Mustang is great. I understand the love for Embrace of the Serpent. Uh, the other two nominees are respectable. But I think Son of Saul really is not just an achievement in filmmaking. It's just an important reminder of how horrifying things can go if we let shit go down like this. So... It's a part of our dark history, basically. Yeah, and we should always be reminded of the yep. evils of men. Okay, so that's right. Um, so yeah, thank you we... so much for coming to my Feed show. <laughs> it is really a blast talking yeah. about Son of Soul. I mean, I did not have, I did not expect to have so much fun with such a depressing film. I don't like using that word. <laughs> But it is a really horrifying yeah, uh, yeah. film that I recommend. So, yeah. Can you uh, please tell our yeah. listeners um, your upcoming work? Right. So, my name is Rafi. I'm an aspiring scribberata. Uh, I have a couple of, uh, well, it's podcast-wise. I will have scripties coming soon during this uh, crisis. So, it's about storytelling lessons, things we can learn from great uh media um another thing is currently making the score <laughs> uh i'm just connecting different royalty free loops and making but uh the the story uh of my troll lover it's it's about it's directed by rod singh from writer and director of mamu and the mother too um so it's about it's about um gender queer a gender queer individual finding love during this 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 crisis, and the, uh, what's interesting is that there's feedback now that people are saying that it's 
in the comments, which is kind of sad, saying that it's a fantasy if you're like a transgender woman or you're like uh, to find a straight guy falling in love with you as a woman. So that's interesting because um, it's it's sad because <laughs> you know it's like uh, even the comments are saying that this isn't realistic, but it it does happen, and I think it's important for films to um, other films like Son of Saul are reminders of um, horrors of mankind. But there are also movies that are also show us a new normal or another way to live and, you know, like A Fantastic Woman, which I also really love. I hope there are more movies and series like these. But sorry, I'm plugging myself. I forgot. So yeah, Scripties, Mitro Lover, it's on Facebook. Um, oh, uh, find Mitro Lover by checking Mamu and the Mother too, and the episodes are there. Um, other things I do, uh, well, I'm working on my own screenplay, which will probably never happen because it's so, <laughs> so hard to write. And I, I don't like what I write. So I write and then I look at it and ah, screw this. So, um, but I'm enjoying it, which is what's important. Just enjoy the process. If you're, if you're a writer, so if you want to write your own stuff, you, Carlos, if you have your own projects, just keep writing. So yes, yeah. that's it. Happy and, and uh, oh, stay safe. Totes, stay totes, home, totes. Stay safe. Uh, stay okay. safe, everyone. And you can find this podcast at One Inch Barrier. You can search it. It's available on Anchor and Spotify. Please be patient. It's gonna come in other streaming platforms really soon. And you can also find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana. So yeah, I wish everyone uh, safety and good health. Goodbye, 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 and together, let us break the one-inch barrier.